Hello, I am Carter Thomas. I'm the founder of Blue Cloud Solutions, and you are listening to the App Guy Podcast. The App Guy Podcast. Straight from your host, Paul, the App Guy. Welcome to another episode of the App Guy Podcast. I am your host, it's Paul Kemp. This is the show that truly goes around the world and gets lots of different nationalities uh, that, so that we can listen to these uh, really inspiring guests uh, deconstruct their journeys, uh, their entrepreneurial journeys, their app journeys, their, digi- their sort of in, in their world of uh, digital. And uh, the reason we do this is because it helps you in whatever projects you have going on, uh, whatever uh, uh, startups that you have going on or any any kind of career uh, that you're taking we, we really do try to to kind of bring you the genuine uh, non-sales um, entrepreneurial journeys from our guests so this is episode 536 uh, 536 of course if uh, you have missed uh, past episodes you can go to the archives and I've got another 500 odd episodes for you to go into the archives with and, and listen to there and just search the uh, Paul Kemp in your favorite podcasting app. So let's go on to the today's episode. Today's episode is uh, with a CEO, always tends to be CEOs and founders uh, that I love to chat to. Uh, the CEO in this case is the CEO of Zumper. His name is Anthemis Georgiadis. Uh, Anthemis, hi, welcome to the App Guy podcast. Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you. Yeah, yeah nice to meet you as well. And uh, okay, so let's uh, first of all um, talk about Zumper because uh, Zumper, uh, I'm unaware of um, uh, the journey you've had with this. T- tell us about Zumper. Yeah, so uh, it kind of all began actually when I was, um, I'm currently based in, in California in San Francisco, but it began as, a, as an undergrad at, um, in England where for the first time ever you move out of kind of undergraduate accommodation and you're 20, 21, and it's the first time you have to really fend for yourself in the real world. And for me, it was kind of finding my first ever apartment rental. And I had such a miserable experience, as I'm sure many of your listeners have had while moving home, not just in like trying to find an apartment to rent, but also in when you find the one you really want, how to lock it down. It, it just seemed incredible like 10 years ago that there wasn't a way to just book an apartment. And it just turns out that 10 years on, there was still no way to do this. And so it began with a, a personal frustration of mine 10 years ago that I saw multiple times every time I moved. And then finally, uh, five years ago, while I was living in the US, I decided to actually be the person to go and try and fix that problem myself. And, you know, already I'm inspired. And I'll tell you the reason why. There's so many um, people who get into this for uh, the, the money, and they, you know, they look at some successful idea and they think they can emulate it. But um, so many of the successful guests that I have on this show have had a personal issue, a personal problem, and they've they've kind of identified this uh, as a, a a decent problem to go after, and uh, and really addressed it. So you you've got this personal problem, then Anthemos, and I just wondered, did you do any other research to justify? you know, giving up your life to pursue fixing it? Yeah, no, it, it was, um, I, I did. Uh, I think it was a lifelong kind of pursuit if we pull this off or kind of when we pull this off. And so you had to be very sure up front that there really was uh, a problem here to fix. It wasn't just something uh, that I'd noticed and then I was just unlucky. And so kind of a year before we raised the first $1 million for the idea, 
I am, I was at business school, um, in the U S uh, which is a typically a two year course. And in the summer between those two years, instead of taking kind of an investment banking internship, I just went off and take, took an unpaid internship for myself and, uh, tested the idea. So I moved to San Francisco. I tested the concept of would a renter put out their iPhone or Android phone in an open house and press book, literally just something that simple. And we, we did it with 35 leases in San Francisco just to see if that problem I'd noticed that it was kind of crazy. We were still transacting on paper was actually real. And we could have abundantly and overwhelmingly showed that renters would do that and wouldn't just do it, but they were, they loved it because it felt like e-commerce in, in moving apartments. And so, yes, I spent really a year kind of researching, trying ideas out. And uh, finally, kind of the validation was we could have put that year together into like a 10 slide PowerPoint deck and went to Silicon Valley and raised the first million dollars uh, for Zumper back in 2012. Right. I, I love this already. And and one part of that journey, which I'm fascinated with, is that you mentioned, you know, you could have gone to uh, investment banking, you know, for your uh, in- internship or uh, your first experience uh, after business school. And uh, of course, I went into investment banking. And I do remember uh, the fact that you, you're so um, drawn by peers, by uh, media, by what society expects for you to go and get the best paying uh, possible job. And it, how hard was it then to resist the temptation to go for, you know, the kind of 50, 60 grand a year um, uh, and actually go to something that you're not really getting paid very well for? Yeah, no, that that's the that's a great question. And to be clear, I, I succeeded in doing it the second time, but out of undergraduate, where I first had the idea, I, I went the same route. I ended up working for the Boston Consulting Group in London, kind of working 20-hour days for three years and, um, and didn't go the entrepreneurial journey route to begin with. So I think... Uh, even for me, who's ended up running kind of a hundred person company now that it wasn't inevitable. And it was a, it was a really hard decision to actually turn down the, the kind of safe career in inverted commas. I think the second time after business school, when I succeeded in, I guess, turning my back on the more traditional career is I think to your point earlier, if you have the idea and it just burns a hole in your like soul that if you're not the person to pull it off, it will kind of gripe you for the rest of your life because it's so obvious what you're what you're going to go and do <laughs> whether you're whether you're delusional or not if you feel that call it's really hard to see any other job as as delivering kind of any kind of personal satisfaction to you if you feel that kind of urgency and so back to your earlier point about how do you kind of not take the the money in an investment banking thing or how do you kind of go all in on this i think for Entrepreneurs who start companies to make money, they typically won't, they're not the successful, the most successful entrepreneurs. I think the most successful entrepreneurs who want to solve a problem and they're the ones who will burn the midnight oil to solve that problem until it's finally done. So I think, I think I just felt that sense of inevitability the second time around. Whereas the first time, I think I, I felt like it should be done. But I, I think in 2005, when I left undergrad, that the technology wasn't really there to do it. I think native mobile, um, you know, iPhone and Android apps were kind of much more developed and the ecosystem was there in 2012. It wasn't there in 2005. And I think that was the final tipping point, which made me think that actually this is the time to go and do it back in 2012. And so let's talk back on that period then, 2012. And you mentioned that you raised a million dollars 
And how hard was that? Because we've heard that some stories from ex-founders uh, is, is that, oh, it just took a day of the first person I phoned, I got the money from. Others, it took like years. And what was your journey like to raising uh, that substantial amount of investment? Yeah, and um, it was probably, I mean, we've raised a total of $39 million now um, in the five years since then. And so I'd say the first million was definitely uh, the hardest. Um, you know, for the 38 million we've raised afterwards, I wouldn't say it was easy, but, um, I think the, there was more traction to point out. The first million was the hardest. We, um, we started with kind of European VCs that I, I knew some of them and East, East Coast VCs, um, where I was based. And I think they typically look for like revenue traction. Even some look for like EBITDA or profit traction, which, you know, as uh, many entrepreneurs will sympathize with when you're just focused on, on creating a flame it's really hard to like also drive revenue. You're just trying to get users through uh, organically. And so the first million ended up coming from West Coast VCs um, who in my experience are at the early stages more prepared to take an early bet on the product before any monetization. And so once we kind of realized that and changed the strategy to focus really exclusively on raising from West Coast funds, it went much quicker. So actually the first million dollars came from a one week trip I took um, out to San Francisco where I was kind of staying in a motel. I was desperately sick because I'd just been to a wedding of a friend of mine in India and I was, I got horrible kind of food poisoning and, and flu. So I was kind of sweating out every night in a crappy motel in, in San Francisco. But, um, day to day we were having kind of like six or seven back to back meetings for a week. And, um, once you got the first investor, so once the first check was through the door, um, from a, from a pretty well known venture capital fund in Silicon Valley, um, called Kleiner Perkins. The rest came very quickly after that. So I think we had a really credible story. We had really good traction to suggest that renters didn't just want to search using Zumper, that they would actually use Zumper to book apartments. And once we got the first person to say yes, the rest came easier. The first took, took um, I guess, ultimately months. But when I found the right target audience, it took a week. Yeah, and also, you know, you know from these venture capitalists that uh, some of them have uh, the school of thought is that they go all in for the idea. Others, uh, it's about the person and the the entrepreneur that they're looking at, the founder, and and others, it's a mix of the two. But uh, I'd love to go back to like you know your confidence in that first initial um, raise, and were there any particular like metrics or? Um, things that you you did that really gave you the advantage of raising that that amount of money yeah i think it was probably um at the early stages just the the best piece of advice i'd have is just focus on one story one one thing i think you know if we got in and said this is how many landlords we have this is how many renters we have this is how much revenue we had it would, i think a vc would be like okay sure it's kind of early there's various things but i, I don't see what's going to be different to like a big company, you know, in, in the US, the big guys are like Zillow or apartments.com in the UK. It's obviously like right move. Um, so, so like just creating a mini version of a bigger company, I, I doesn't really appeal to them that much. What we did was focus on one metric, which was very different, which we said, we'll, we'll do search and we'll spend our first few years building a very large search engine for millions of monthly renters. But actually, at the very beginning, we wanted to just prove that those renters, if you took them through to an open house, would actually book what would ultimately be sometimes a $50,000 transaction, say they were taking a 12-month lease for $4,000 a month um, on their phone. Like, would they actually do that? Because that was a really new behavior, and, and it still is today. Um, and 
that's what the VCs really bit into, that they said, sure, we believe these guys can build a search site like all these other guys have before them. But this one metric that they've built off 35 leases, which is still a really no number, this is really different. And I believe in this. This is their end game. This is their true north. This, I can believe, if they could scale this to 50 states, would be massive. And so actually, the deck even excluded some stuff that looks really good and was a pretty sexy metric because we just wanted them to focus on this one thing. And in retrospect, I think I think that's the advice I'd give myself if I was doing it again, is kind of get rid of the noise. The investors will assume a certain level of like progress across the other stuff. Focus on the one metric that when they write a one-line email to their partners after the meeting, they're only going to talk about that one metric. That's how the deals get done typically in like early stage venture. And um, that's what we ended up kind of finding works for us. Yeah, you almost reminded me a little bit of uh, the the uh, presentation that Steve Jobs gave at Harvard that time where he addressed um, the, the graduates and he was talking about uh, joining the dots uh, and you can only see it in, in retrospect. And listening to your story, I'm almost thinking your time at BCG, you know, the 20 hours a day burning <laughs> the midnight oil. And uh, that, that no doubt helped you when you came to that daunting task of uh, going into a room full of, uh, you know, powerful people and, and, and being able to deliver a, a really succinct story that kind of came across perfectly and uh, managed to get you off the ground. Would you say that's the case? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think um, in retrospect, um, a lot of entrepreneurs you've probably had on your podcast will kind of tie a narrative together that it was all, it was all inevitable. You know, I, I took this, you know, I started at BCG, then I went to business school to f- finish the kind of polishing of the skills and then I was prepared for a startup and in retrospect I think it tells a great story the the reality was yeah never really felt like that it was kind of um I yeah took the BCG job because it was safe and MBA was like a safe idea starting Zampo was just from this constant restlessness that like no one else was doing this booking engine for apartment rentals and so I think you're right I think when we were doing the the seed round all of the skills that you could have amassed in completely different industries somewhat was super helpful. It's just you never know it at the time. It, it really takes you to kind of pull up to 50,000 foot and look back on it to think, okay, yep, like no way I could have probably done that uh, without the training. It's just, as you know, in the moment, so much that matters isn't like your training or your education. It's the kind of the constant resilience to like being buffeted by various different headwinds that try and like knock you off your perch as an early stage startup. And you know, in the, in the early days, you're just focused on staying afloat and uh, and pushing on. Yeah, and actually, just thinking about it, uh, this it does try to be a genuine show. You know, we've had uh, a lot of other guests, and uh, what I always explain to the Abster tribe listening to this is that uh, we can't sometimes uh, mimic or copy the guests that we um, you know have on the show. Like, we wouldn't be able to like go to um, BCG and go into master do a master's whatever and it just doesn't happen that way but what we can do is learn from the the, the bits that we can from you uh so uh, uh, let's move on then uh, and, and get closer um to uh, now in terms of what are the big challenges that you have uh, you face now in, in your business you've grown so much over the years you said 100 people uh, 39 million dollars raised and uh, what what are the big challenges for you now I think the single biggest uh, challenge any company that grows kind of from you know zero employees to a hundred, which we now have in in four four and a half years, is focus. Um, 
I think as a, as an early stage company, you don't have any competition. Um, the big public companies in your space, sure, they're competition, but they're not really. They're so big and they have tens of thousands of people typically. And so, you know, you, in the short term, you, you don't have a hope in like competing with their marketing budget or anything. And so I think the most important thing we realized is that the biggest competition we have is our own ability to focus. And as a 20 person company, that's difficult. But as an 100 person company, it's everything. And so making sure that, um, what we tell the board, what we tell our exec team, what we tell the most recent hire who might be higher 98 is completely aligned so that every single person in our, in Zumper's business can see how their daily efforts and all the hard work they put in rolls up to like one core purpose is critical. And I think that a lot of companies at our level struggle with that. I know that we've struggled with it like through the, through the years, I think. We've been better than most, but it, it's difficult because you you see competitors do interesting things. You kind of hire people with really great ideas that are slightly different to the way you plan to implement it. So I think as a as a CEO of a business as well, it's super boring as a as a concept, but it's actually critical. Is driving like absolute narrow introspective focus. And so when you ask the question of what's the single biggest problem facing us, I think how we next grow from like. 100 to 250 people without losing our sole focus of building the first ever real booking engine for apartment rentals is everything. And so that's what kind of keeps me up at night. And I think that's the, the single biggest challenge we have. And uh, in terms of like your business as well, um, do you focus on all the markets or uh, are you just predominantly uh, the US? Yeah. And that that's it's absolutely related to the previous question, which is, um, you know, I'm, I'm British, as you can probably tell from my accent, uh, <laughs> uh, lived in the US for a while, but there was no, um, inevitability that I would start the company here. It just kind of, I, I, the opportunity presented itself at the right time here saying that actually we're pretty narrowly focused on just the US with currently real zero plans to move outside the US and, and Canada, which, which we're kind of already in as part of an acquisition we did a year ago. And so, um, we're in all 50 states with the search platform. With Zumper Select, which is uh, the booking product, which really takes a renter beyond search through to end to end. We're currently only in um, six markets in the US, six kind of big cities. Now, the model will work in a hundred cities in the US. And so actually really, um, in the next four years, we're only really focused on getting our model from six to a hundred markets in the United States. If someone, and you know, occasionally we get a bunch of emails telling us that, there are competitors who want to partner with us in different markets like Brazil or Europe, or I think England was an example recently. Um, sometimes the best answer is like, good luck to them. Like if they want to kind of uh, look into the model and like, they're going to go help some consumers in that market. Great. Like I'm all for it. It will make lives better for the people moving in those markets. Um, it's just for us, the problem is large enough in the U S right now. And so we're laser focused just here um, at the expense of international growth. So, Antimus, one of the other things we love to explore is that we the, to kind of get a sense of uh, what it's like to do what you do, because it's hard, you know, when you have um, like a corporate career, it's quite easy to break down your responsibilities, your job. But, you know, when you have the founders and CEOs, it's sometimes kind of hard to get an idea of what they actually do day to day. So would you be able to give us an essence of like, say, over the last week or so, like what, what's been your main tasks uh, as the, you know, the CEO of this as company? Yeah, I'd say, um, and, and it's really evolved. I think you start as fun, you start selling, fundraising, building products, um, 
hiring you, you do everything you're this all singing or dancing band um when you start a company so now with a hundred um the last week uh pretty three top priorities that um i i've been working on and, and it's a good uh, uh limits test for kind of really where you spend your time as a bigger company ceo um so one is on fundraising so even though we're not currently raising money we will be in 2018 and so in the last week i've had you know, over a dozen meetings and coffee chats with potential investors that will invest next year, not pitching them, not sending them a pitch deck yet, but just getting them to know me and know the vision and get excited about what we're building. Um, the second thing is on the kind of hiring and retention. So ultimately it all rolls up to you, whether it's culture, hiring, um, and retaining your best people. And so in the last week, I've also been the final interview for probably over a dozen candidates that my team have been interviewing across engineering and various other roles. And then um, also working with other managers and like creating great packages for our best performing employees to make sure they're super happy that they continue to stay with us until the end. And so that's a, that's a really important second piece of my role. And uh, the third one is on just product alignment. The, the things we mentioned, just making sure that like on a weekly basis, what our engineering team or our design team are focused on is exactly what we've told the growth team is exactly what we've told the sales team and exactly what we've told the boards and our investors. And so, it's kind of setting guardrails so that people can just execute with zero ambiguity. So they're the kind of three things we, we kind of on a weekly basis are, I'll always be working on. And then every now and again, something will come out of left field. So for example, I struck a big deal with a, a huge partner that will go live in November last week that came out of left field three weeks ago. And it made sense for the CEO of the business to do the deal because it's, it's with a very large uh, player. Um, that we'll be able to announce in November. And so, you know, every, every week, 15 different things will come out of left field, whether good or bad that you need to deal with. But, um, across the typical week, it was mainly those first three things, uh, what takes up at least half of my time. Yeah. One of the big challenges, uh, that a lot of us find, you know, doing all this stuff is that information overload, you can get just so much information, you can get bombarded, you know, you start to uh, get a report that you think is going to be valuable. And then one report leads to 10 leads to 50 or whatever you're looking at and all these different metrics. How, how do you uh, sort of uh, discipline yourself to uh, take in what you need and almost dismiss the, the rest or delegate whatever else you, do, you don't need to uh, digest in terms of information. Uh, that, and that is super hard. Um, I, and I think that's super hard in an early stage business or a late stage business. Um, I, my, my head of business operations, a guy called Brian, he's very good at creating kind of like uh, kind of tree logic for how things roll up. So if you think about OKRs or DRIs, kind of, every single business should be broken into its constituent parts. And, and that really helps incentivize, especially junior folk who join to see where their role is, that even if they don't control the main number, they have to understand how they, how, what they do in terms of like how many onboards they do or how many sales calls they do, how it leads up to like a top line revenue or um, lease number. And so Brian, um, our head of BizOps does a has a great exercise for actually rolling that down the organization so that, at the, at the junior levels, everyone knows their numbers, then it rolls up to their managers, and then it rolls up to the CEO. And so ultimately, what I see is a dashboard of all the most important numbers, which in the day-to-day -day is enough for me to be able to understand if we're going in the right direction or if the board needs to kind of have input. But if I ever want to drill down into them, it's kind of logically put together so that I can get as granular as I want to, not by kind of pulling a completely separate report, but by just drilling into one of the top-line numbers I'm given where all the details kind of underneath it and like it's quite easy to explore. And I think my, 
my team are usually pretty devastated if it ever comes to that because then I'll ask them like kind of several dozen questions from stuff that I haven't understood or kind of the, the models evolve so much since I've last looked at it. But I think most CEOs should really have two or three numbers maximum that they're focused on. And uh, as long as they're either leading indicators showing that there'll be future success later or they're lagging indicators because you really believe in your leading indicators. So you just want to see the outcome. Uh, if, if you're tracking more than two to three obsessively, um, it's, it's probably too many. And then the final anecdote from that is I think Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook was very well known for only having one number in a lot of his um, uh, daily or monthly meetings, which was kind of DAUs, daily active users over MAUs, monthly active users, which was a proxy for saying how many people came back to Facebook every single day who used it at least once a month. And Facebook could have tracked, you know, a hundred thousand numbers in that, in that all hands meeting, but they were very good at actually just tracking one. And it's a really hard discipline, but I think it's really important. Yeah. yeah. And also I tell you that the people we would love to help here as well are, are those that are thinking about going into either a business school or maybe taking that job with uh, one of the big consultants. Um, so uh, what I'd love to know as well is that uh, the stuff that you'd learned from business school and BCG, how applicable is it to what you're doing um, with with your your role now? Yeah, I mean, I I think BCG, which is like you know consulting CEOs of kind of large FTSE or Fortune 100 companies, um, equips you great for board meetings and for managing like a business with revenue. Um, you know, you never were <laughs> involved in product decisions at BCG in terms of like, if you're consulting a, a supermarket, like typically you won't get down to like helping build their product. You're, you're kind of structure how to do it at a high level, um, in terms of online product. But, um, BCG was great for managing a business that now we're growing into, which is, um, actually has revenue and like kind of margin considerations. I think where business school, um, was really helpful was on the, Kind of the way you angle business school. So I, I went to Harvard Business School on the East Coast and the second year at Harvard, you can uh, choose your electives and like slant them to like things that you really want to learn. So for me, I didn't want to do any more strategy classes or economics classes because I, I, BCG had just dr- drilled me in that. So I angled very heavily, um, in my, my MBA to stuff like negotiation. And so when negotiation comes in, it's kind of at every single point in the, the startup journey, whether you're, negotiating your first hire, you're negotiating your series A, your series B, um, like a class like that has just transcend, like it, it's permeated every single interaction I've had through the business. And it's not something you really pick up at BCG because you don't have the time to abstract up to do that. We had a, a you know, a world famous professor teaching us like the art of negotiation, uh, at, in my second year at business school and stuff like that, you can really, really kind of use immediately after business school. And so I'd say for those, those of your listeners who are considering BCG or, or a consulting firm or bank, it's a fantastic training in how to run a business. Uh, in terms of business school, I think it has two advantages. One is you can really focus on the things that you weren't experienced in. And two is business school, let's just call it what it is, is a 12 to 20 month kind of time off to really soul search about if you're ready for a startup and if you, if you, if you uh, have the right idea. And so, for me, it was as much about learning kind of negotiation tricks and finance tricks as it was about actually just having the, the headspace to take time off and and research an idea. So I'm I'm really you know they're they're amazing things to do. Um, I'd even if you wanted to do a startup down the road and you weren't ready tomorrow, they're fantastic journeys. Saying that some people are just they're ready now and they won't need to take 
either of those options. And if you have a, a burning idea, the best thing is to just go and execute against it and uh, figure it out as you go. I love that advice. Fantastic. So uh, as we draw to the end of uh, our chat, it's been wonderful. Um, well, how best can people find out about Zumper? Uh, what, what's the, where's the best place to go? Yeah, so um, Zumper.com, Z-U-M-P-E-R.com uh, is our kind of the web platform uh, where you can search for apartments. And then if you're in the US and then if you're uh, in one of our first six markets, which are kind of Denver, Atlanta, New York, Chicago, Dallas, Houston, um, in those markets, you can actually go end to end where we'll actually help you kind of sign your lease and kind of go the whole way through Zumper. Um, and then we also have iOS and Android apps. So if you just hit Zumper in the App Store or the Play Store um, and download our app, uh, you'll be able to search through those. And um, otherwise, yeah, just uh, um, Googling around. We've got some really interesting announcements coming out. And we also put a lot of stuff out on um, rent prices. So I think it's uh, been a common topic in the US about how markets have been quite hot and they seem to be cooling off. So you may also come across us um, just, just through reading your local newspaper and uh, the real estate trends they they talk about there. And uh, and for all of those who um, want to go to a resource, uh, you just go to the appguide.co and, and search for episode 536 and you'll see uh, links to um, uh, all the stuff that we talked about. So thanks for coming on this show. I tell you, that's so inspiring, so inspiring. I love uh, doing this podcast and meeting people like yourself because it really does... It's enormously motivating to hear the enthusiasm, the passion, the fact the passion is still there after all these years of, of you doing such a hard uh, job and, and the fact that it just so it sounds so much fun. So thanks for coming on the App Guy podcast and, and I wish you all the best for the future. Thanks very much, Paul. I enjoyed it.